You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 81 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. Today, we are joined by dual PhD candidate in anthropology and cognitive science, Lana Ruck. Lana first appeared on episode 16, then episode 41, and recently appeared in episode 79. But today, rather than talk about pseudoscientists or nerd out over paleoanthropology with Ella, we're going to catch up with Lana about her dissertation and the academic job market and why each pot and pan needs to have its own shelf in the kitchen. Lana, thank you so much for joining us back on the show today. How are you doing this evening? I am good. I'm coming at you live from El Paso, Texas. So I'm warm and toasty and getting blown around by some wind, but otherwise pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Excellent. Yeah, we're very excited to have you on again. So real quick, Lana, just to recap for our audience if they haven't heard you before, can you briefly introduce yourself and what it is you do? Yeah, so I'm Lana Ruck. I'm a PhD candidate in the Cognitive Science Program and Department of Anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington. I am trained as a Paleolithic archaeologist and I specialize in stone tools, but my research is about the evolution of handedness and what that might be able to tell us about the evolution of stone tools and also the evolution of the brain, possibly the evolution of human language. What else about me? I am originally from Texas. I've done field work in a few places in Ecuador, where I did my field school, uh, Nicaragua, and one week in Wyoming. And um, also at Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. So, yep. Excellent. Thank you for the recap. So last time, well, not last time, back in episode 16, which was dedicated to learning more about your research, spoke about your data collection for your dissertation. Can you give us a brief, a little bit more than a brief recap on what your dissertation is on? Yeah. So my dissertation is the first study to try and study stone tool making, language, visuospatial attention, and handedness all together in like this delicious little soup. So I have left-handers and right-handers in my dissertation, and it's a multi-day study. They would come back three separate times. And so the first part of my study is about uh, assessing handedness and the many different ways in which we researchers uh, do that. And so people come into the lab and they build puzzles and play with some Legos and do some different um, tasks with their left and right hands, and I compare the behavior of their hands then the second day they came into the lab and uh, watched a short nonverbal video, a uh, first person perspective matching their handedness of how to make expedient Oldowan tools. So it's just core reduction, hard hammer stone, nothing fancy. And then they, with two or three cores, got to attempt to do it themselves. And I would say about 70 to 80% of people were able to take flakes off. Some people were, were not successful. And then the next day they came back for a two-hour MRI brain scan at the MRI facility there at Indiana University. And um, that was the most expensive part of the project. It was $500 an hour plus paying the participants $100 each. 
And in the scanner, they did some stone tool making tasks, some anatomical scans, a language task where they had to say some words out loud and a visual spatial task where they had to look at some lines. And I'm kind of seeing what which hemispheres of the brain each participant is using for these tasks and how it relates or does not relate to their handedness. So, yeah. You know, speaking of costs, could you recount the story of how a certain subject might have interfered with what you're trying to do? And I think his name starts with C and ends with Arlton. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I, you know, he, he's not the only one who's done it, but he's one of very few Carlton was one of my participants. Is it? Do I have your consent to give your participant number so they know which one you are? Yeah, go for it. So he's participant 18018. And, you know, the brain scan is two hours long, but it's very loud in the scanner. It's this giant magnet. So it's going like the whole time. And he's watching videos of rocks being broken. So it's a really loud task. And he fell asleep during one of my scans. And so one of the scans, I didn't even run on him. It was a three-part video and we didn't even watch part three. I had two other participants do that. So now I have to throw out that entire video for everybody. It's a little bit of a pain. And that's one of the things with MRI research is that you have to average across participants. So if any of your scans go wrong or if someone moves their head too much and by too much, I mean more than like three millimeters. You know, you have to throw them out of the data and your sample size, just you just watch it become smaller and smaller and smaller and you get so sad. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, one of our scans got interrupted by a fire alarm that was dramatic. And so yeah, yeah, Carlton wasn't the best participant. And when he was building the puzzle, he became self-aware that he hadn't used his left hand a single time. And I'm just kind of in the background thinking like, yep, you're really, you're being a perfect right-hander. You're totally on brand. Don't think about it. It's okay. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. Yeah, I do miss data collection. It was a really fun, my calendar was always booked. I was always running across campus from one lab space to the other. and It was really fun. Excellent. Yeah, it was a fun time. When we did have you on, it was kind of in the beginning of COVID. I mean, I don't think we expected COVID as a society to last as long as it did. How did COVID-19 affect your data collection? Well, when we recorded me, I don't even think COVID had happened yet. I think it was still the fall. But so for me, I my data collection was impacted really heavily by, by two things. And one of them was the COVID-19 pandemic. But the first is so... Indiana University made it so that you could scan for free. You just didn't have priority access. So you had to book your scans like 24 hours before. And for someone like me who had other time constraints for my study, like there had to be as close to 24 hours as possible between the flint napping session and the MRI for memory consolidation purposes, assuming every participant slept in the 24 hours in between the, the, two, the two days. And so booking scans was a little hard, but they, they made a system so that if you had grant money and you paid it into the running of the scanner and the wages for the MRI technician and the physicist who helps you build your scans, 
then you have priority access and you use the scanner as, as a normal person. And so I got an NSF grant two weeks before IU shut down all human subjects research. And I was in the middle of collecting data and I had collected almost as much by the time I got the grant because grants are so slow. I had collected almost as much as I had told them I was going to. And then everything shut down. And then nothing was happening for a couple months and they reopened human subjects research uh, towards the end of summer. And by that time, what had happened is half of the scanner had been paid for by the athletics department, who instead of running experimental brain scans and doing psychological research, they were running COVID research. They were taking athletes who had gotten COVID and were COVID positive, and they were putting them in the scanner and scanning their heart and lungs. And I'm not saying that's not important research. That's really important to do, but I wasn't really comfortable going in there unvaccinated when I know right before me and right after me, someone with COVID was in there. You know, I, I was one of those very paranoid people. And so I waited a whole year to try and spend that grant. And by the time it came to it, I just, I didn't have the time because they were still a full year later, um, still scanning athletes. And there was no time in the scanner to run my study. They had, you know, two years of backlog by that point. And so many people use that facility. So yeah, that's, I, I had to give the NSF grant back, which was a really dramatic story that was, uh, I, I think I might be one of the only people that's ever had to do that. Uh, <laughs> so the, the athletics department hijacked, uh, well, maybe not hijacked is the right word, but begun to use, begin to use the scanner. How many subjects were you shooting for and how many did you end up getting? So I was aiming for 50, 25 lefties and 25 righties. And what I ended up with was 19 lefties and 23 writing. So I'm only too short on that one. But then I've had to throw, you know, three or four people out for excessive head movement or stuff like that. So you're kind of chipping away at your sample. And I, you know, those weeks in March of 2020, I, I was running four lefties. I had four lefties, you know, like on the books. At, at that point in time, I was the one who was probably using the scanner the most frequently and, you know, there were so many other things going on. I was supposed to move away for a teaching fellowship and that never happened. And I probably would have been done collecting my data by April of 2020. I, I was so close, you know, and if I had gotten that grant, I would have just been able to run so many people and get a huge sample. And then the study, I think really would have, it would have been really worth it, but you know, there have been some people, especially international researchers, who just everything was put on hold. People who hadn't gotten funding yet and didn't, you know, have these kind of equity measures going on in the background that allowed them to collect data. I am still really thankful that they changed the system and allowed a lot of free scanning to, to happen. But yeah, it was uh, pretty unfortunate. Yeah, we're super sorry to hear that. And sorry for anyone whose research is affected by COVID-19. You had mentioned that your study, or you had said that your study might have a greater impact. So do you still 
you still think your research and your dissertation is going to be impactful, but maybe there's always going to be a question about sample size. Is that is that what you kind of meant? Well, unfortunately, um, and so I haven't analyzed the stone tool brain data yet. And that's, you know, like the wild west of my data. It's the most exploratory, the stuff that going into the study, we really have the least expectations coming out of it. But I haven't been able to replicate a language and visuospatial attention study that I was trying to because I haven't found differences in brain organization between my left-handers and my right-handers. And it's because I don't have enough weird lefties in my sample. All of my left-handers look like they have very right-hand organized brains. And, you know, the handedness studies and brain imaging studies, now their sample sizes are, you know, between 350 only left-handers and 150,000. So, you know, they're insane. And I get over here, I'm like, 19. I tried so hard, guys. You have no idea. You know, it's, it's a little unfortunate, but we're trying to spin it in a positive light. And I can put this as pilot data into a grant proposal for a bigger study. There are some things about my methods that were different than theirs. They used, you do a lot of, it's, it's image analysis, MRI analysis, and you do a lot of spatial smoothing and processing of the data. And so I might try smoothing at a lower resolution and doing a lot more averaging to see if I might come up with some different results. But that's going to have to be after my dissertation. This is the thing, too, the wait and see and sit and hope and all of that. I'm on a timeline. Every year that I don't graduate, I'm losing wages by not getting on the real job market. I'm, I'm sitting on my ass, you know, doing nothing except having panic attacks, maybe, I don't know. So I, I had to, you know, call it a day and get working on the data that I did have. Uh, neuroimaging pre-processing, if you do it correctly, is very time consuming because you want to manually check for participants. Of, it's working properly. Um, so yeah, it's it's been a rigmarole. Um, I, I don't know what my other results will be, my stone tool stuff. I'm still excited to get into that data. And there's so much data for that project that I'm not even touching. I'm really not even touching the lithic materials yet. So I don't know, a couple more months and I'll have my full results and know how screwed I am truly. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's a lot of potential and we're, we're thinking good things. And I've heard that the, uh, the only good dissertation is a done or a finished dissertation. That's so. 100% true. Correct. <laughs> My committee calls it a credentialing exercise. I want to make sure that you can run a study. And I definitely did that. So I'm ready for my degrees. <laughs> Just a couple chapters away. <laughs> Excellent. And with that, we'll be right back with segment two of episode 81 with Lana Ruck. And welcome back to episode 81 of Life Runs Podcast. We're here again with uh, Lana Ruck. Fourth time. I'm pretty sure this makes her the most hat on guest. Whoop, whoop. I think Yay. that's me, actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually a host. I think I'm, I'm I think I realized you're you out of out of the hosting pedigree, Connor. You've been on every single episode pretty much. Like me and Connor have it, or me and David have missed some, but you've been I missed one. I missed the uh, one with uh hip hop science guy. 
Oh, that's right. Okay, so we're all, we're all about even. Yeah, but we do have Lana Ruck here, and we are not talking about us right now. We are talking with her, and we wanted to start this um, the second the second segment um, talking about maybe some of the things that were happening um, with you uh, with your NSF grant, if you don't mind talking about that. That space music comes with the NSF grant. <laughs> That's what they give you when you get it. Um, yeah, so I got a dissertation research improvement grant from the archaeology subdirective of the National Science Foundation in March of 2020, two weeks before IU shut down all human subjects research. And a full year later, I had to give the NSF back because I couldn't spend it. And so... The first problem with the grant was that I got it like six months too late and I had already been really in the swing of collecting my data. And so the grant reviewing process can take a really long time, especially if your reviewers are very slow. You can take up to six months to get feedback. And also you can't apply for these federal grants unless you're a PhD candidate, which for me involved, I can't remember if we talked about it in the first segment or not two qualifying exams. And so, and, and it involves a lot of paperwork. And so I submitted the grant, like I almost a full year of doing no, no research, no nothing waiting for money so that I could collect data because MRIs are $500 an hour. And then I pay each of my participants a hundred dollars. So it was an expensive project. And so what had happened was they shut down research. And by the time they opened research back up, Half of the scans that were happening at the MRI facility were being paid for by the athletics department and they were scanning athletes that had COVID. And they were doing like, instead of psychological research and and brain scans, they were scanning people who had heart and lung damage from COVID. And so I didn't want to be scanning people while there were literally COVID positive, you know, patients in and out of the scanner room because it's a room that's like it's smaller than an office. It's a really small room. And so I refused to spend money while they were or to, to run participants while they were scanning athletes. And, and by the time I was vaccinated and I felt safe scanning, so many people wanted to use the scanner that they basically told me it was impossible to to use it in my in my time frame. So I had to um, I have a smaller sample size than what I intended, and I decided to return the money. Now there's another part to that, where you still had money left, and the scanner just wanted to take your grant money and fit you in, quote unquote, when they could. Yeah, yeah. And so this was the whole thing. When I negotiated the grant, you know, it, it was a percentage of salary for for the, the MRI technician and the physicist. And it was a percentage of their salary based on how many hours I was going to scan. And so I, I was kind of expecting this kind of pay as I go kind of thing, which is how the system used to work before they made this kind of other way of doing things where I'd be like, all right, I'm going to run, you know, five participants. That's, you know, what is that? That's um, like $3,000 or $5,000 or something. Yeah, it's $5,000. And they wanted to take all the money without guaranteeing that I was going to get any scan time. And and I didn't want to do that. And they were like, 
they I had given them the account number because I, I was like, oh, which number is the right one to give you? Is it this one or this one? And I was like, oh, thanks. And they're like, okay, we're going to run it. We're going to take your money. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I'm like, no, please don't. Um, don't run that, that email. Like, don't tell that financial person to do that because I don't want you to take all my money and then me not be able to scan. And, and everybody on my committee and, and elsewhere was trying to do everything possible to avoid me returning this grant because, oh, overhead. When you get a grant, your institution takes a portion of that money to pay for, in their view, facilities and infrastructure that you use as a grant or as a faculty of that institution. And so for IU, that percentage overhead is 58.5%. So let's say you pull in, like my grant was actually, it was quite small. It was a $7,000 grant. It was really tiny. And... IU pulled in, I actually had to ask for something like 12,000 because IU pulled in five of its own. And so when you get a grant, they really don't want you to give it back because they want that overhead. They've already kind of factored it into there. And they had been sitting on this money for a year. So it was in their fiscal budget, you know, not that 7,000 or $4,000 is a big deal in the grand scheme of things. But my committee was trying to like get me to use it for other projects that were not my own. And it's like, I'm not going to spend my grant money on your projects. I'm trying to see if I could use it for publishing fees, which is not what that grant is for. Um, and I just got a lot of really, 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 really bad advice in that whole process. The whole application process, I would say, was was a nightmare. So I think I think I had mentioned this before. I think there should have been a fast pass that you should have been able to give money for. And then you skip the lines like they do in Disney, Disneyland. I think that should have been a thing, especially if you have the money and you're, you're right there for it. But also, I think it's crazy that 58 percent of that money you're applying for is gone almost immediately. You know, I think that's. Yeah. Staggering. Well, and and so I'm part of a team that has actually started their own independent of the University Research Institute, and they run their grants through their own institute so that they don't have to give overhead to the institution. And so you can't do this, for instance, for federally regulated funders like NSF, NIH, NEH, anything like that. But for private foundations who will just, you know, give money to whoever, um, there you find a lot of these research institutes because they're trying to avoid that overhead. Yeah, that's I mean that's the amount of it's money high, that you can... Yeah, you and the first time I asked for the NSF when scanning was twice as expensive because they also changed the budget, you know, arbitrarily that way while I was a student there. The max you can ask for is two or $20,000 and I asked for 30,004 cuz the overhead that year was like 54%. And, they, and all these agencies, they just build it into their funding model. They just build it in. Yeah. It makes me think of the Paleo Indian Research Lab and the Fresen Institute at UW. That the Anthro Department has two research institutions. And it makes me think, huh, I wonder why these things got started. <laughs> I guarantee you it's something like that. I guarantee well, you it is. Well, it's, it's, it's just crazy to me because the amount of money that students pay and fees, tuition, all that stuff, in theory, should cover everything, right? You shouldn't. Yeah, you sh yeah. And, and and I mean, it's it's literally called facilities equi and equipment. And it's like the facilities and equipment are what I pay for 
in my fees. Like just the infrastructure is not special to the grant. If you have like special freezers and things like that, but that's usually built into the cost of the lab. And it, it's just, it's like doubling down on these built-in costs for the university for sure. Yeah. It makes me think, I know like, even though University of Colorado Boulder is a quote unquote public school, I think it's like less than 3% of our total funding for the university actually comes from tax dollars. Like we're really not a public enterprise. Well, especially because states have been cutting budgets for public post-secondary education, higher education college for, I I mean, since the Reagan years. So state appropriated budgets are tiny. And so they charge wild amounts of tuition and room and board and food. And, you know, this year, IU, uh, in the post-pandemic, whatever, they're in liminal space. They contracted out all of their food delivery services for all students living on campus to Grubhub. And students were waiting like six hours for a meal. And it's like, I paid three thousand. Like, this is my only way to get food because you've taken all of my money. Please feed my children or please feed me if you're the student yourself. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of crazy. That was a tangent. <laughs> Where are the fees going? I want to I mean, know. <laughs> how else are the universities supposed to afford mascot shaped pools? I mean, like, I can't imagine a university. <laughs> I need a lazy or- God damn it. <laughs> like, yeah, where I can't imagine CU Boulder without our bison shaped pool, which I'm not allowed to use because I'm not an undergraduate. Or the extra stand they just added in whatever for like the executives or whatever. Didn't they just like add like an upper level portion to Folsom Field or something like yes, that? Yes, they did. <laughs> they did. And the president gave himself a raise and now he's on his way out. So, yeah. Go back. Well, I'm. At my institution, these former employees of this thing, well, part of the financial branch of the institution, they wrote like a, I describe it as a hit piece (laughs) on how the finances of the university were being used to fund exec salaries, parties for executives, like international trips for them. And that article was up for two days before the newspaper took it down. You know, nobody really teaches you finance management or grant management as part of undergraduate or or graduate training unless you happen to be in a lab that gets a lot of extramural funding or we're trained to do grant proposals, but we're not really trained to manage the money and work with the granting office. It took my granting office two months to approve my proposal. And like, for instance, nobody had told me to factor in that time. And the NSF archaeology program has a ruling deadline, so it wasn't a problem for me, but I could have missed a deadline. And that's another thing, too, is that granting cycles are so slow. And I, I, I'm hoping it was in this segment that we mentioned Wenner-Gren. Like, if you're applying for a Wenner-Gren doctoral grant, you get your feedback from your first round of applying like three weeks before the next round is due. And for some people, that's not enough time at all to get meaningful edits done, especially if they're teaching and doing other research. And it's crazy. It's, it's really difficult to fund your own research at the doctoral level, for sure. Well, it seems like it's easier if you're already a professor and you have all this stuff built in. It seems like those things yeah. are kind of favored. Towards yeah, yeah. And well, and, and unfortunately, in our system, money begets money. So if you like for me, I, I still have it on my CV that I was awarded this NF, NSF grant, even though I had to return it. 
because I want people to know that I stood on my own merits and was able to get it. And it makes me more likely to get funding in the future. So it's, I mean, it's like, you're like a little domino and you're waiting for the right breeze of wind to (laughs) tip you over. Yeah, absolutely. I know my advisor does not write big grants and is not really used to granting cycles. She just kind of does Doug Bamforth things, which is not writing big grants like other professors of mine do. So he's not aware of those granting cycles. And I remember I missed applying for the NSF GRFP. GRFP. Yeah. He's like, well, we'll just like, you can't apply for it because he forgot that I came in with the master's. So yeah, you're, you're, you're only eligible. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. know about the GRFP until after I was eligible. So and completely that, forgot about that. They've changed yeah. that once. So you can only apply once now. Yeah. You can apply twice if you apply as a senior undergraduate. And it's like, what senior undergraduate students? Like, I know some stellar students that have great ideas for a project. But I don't know that we should be expecting that much of them at that point. What does yeah. that GRFP stand for? Oh. Graduate Research Professionalization Fellowship. Maybe? FP. It's like fellowship. Some. It basically funds you for th- three years. Yeah, I graduate think it funds research you for- fellowship program. Yeah, it funds you, and it's not for research. It's like to pay your stipend for any graduate program. You can go anywhere you want for three years. Yeah. It's a really fantastic grant. I know a, lo- uh, a couple grantees. And Boulder's great a big one. There's only like a couple big schools that get it, and Boulder's one of them. So it seems to be an institutional type thing. So like we. Well, and there are definitely some areas of research that are more well funded than others within anthropology. You know who's running which society and kind of where money goes is something that you pick up along the way. Yeah. Which is yeah. not, I mean, getting back to science is done by people and these agencies are run by people and your peer reviewers are people. Yeah, well, if you put, here at Colorado you put, Boulder, we know what John Yellen likes and we know how to write to him. <laughs> That's all that matters. That's all that matters. Yeah. If you're going to put, if you really want to get anything, you say Clovis, pre-Clovis, any, and then any sort of scientific, you know, fancy big complexity like. or uh, environment, <laughs> so, uh, climate change is a big one now not that yeah. it shouldn't be i think everything should be climate change research um <laughs> but there's there's doctoring i mean there's a little bit of finesse oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, involved yeah, yeah. in this you've whole process a, you've got a point <laughs> you know as, as doug always told me what you write is one thing what you actually do with it is a, is another it just can't be that different I will take that into my dissertation. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So, all right. Well, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up this segment. We'll be right back with episode 81 with uh, Lana Ruck here in a second. Welcome back to a Life in Ruins podcast. We This is episode 81. We are talking with Lana Ruck, our, uh, I don't want to say favorite guest, but our, probably our favorite guest. I'd say she's our favorite guest. I'll when, take when, we it. Need, when we need a guest in a pinch, all I have to do is just <laughs> yell in the bedroom. <laughs> that does help. Yeah, yeah, that helps. And I'm really available now that I'm on writing fellowship. I'm always free. Speaking of that, an important thing that you're probably dealing with now is looking into the job market. Can you talk, tell our listeners how that's going and kind of the process that you're going through at this moment? 
Yeah. So right now I'm looking solely at the academic job market. I'm giving myself a solid six months of just that, giving that just a chance. And since I'm a dual degree in cognitive science and anthropology, and I study language and and stuff like that and brain things, I would say about 60% of the jobs I'm applying to are tenure track jobs in psychology departments. And then about 40% are in anthro. And my list is like 25 jobs long so far, which is a lot. And I, I'm, you know, I'm finding them on job wikis and in my email inbox. And if I see stuff, I send it to people and they send it to me. And you kind of become part of a network of, you know, who's on the market. And it's stressful. Yeah. I mean, I, I've applied to 11 places so far and I haven't heard back from a single one. So it's rough out there. And I, I, I have a really good CV. I, I don't know. I'm trying as hard as I can. I had a really disheartening meeting with, I think he was well-meaning, but one of my like graduate advisors in my cognitive science program was asking me about how the job search was going. And they know I've had job anxiety probably my whole life. So everybody's really, you know, trying to root for me. But he was asking me how many people had read my statements because my job apps, sometimes they're five pages long and sometimes they're 90. It just depends what the school is asking for. Like some people only want a two page cover letter and a CV to start with, which is great. And some people want a cover letter, a CV, a research statement, a teaching statement, a diversity statement, a teaching portfolio, or some evidence of uh, teaching evaluations or syllabi and three letters of recommendation up front. So, oh, and preprints or writing samples. So you put all that together and that's like 90 pages for me. And so there's a wild range of, of what these people want and what they're looking for. So he was asking me, he was like, well, how many people have looked at your statements, the, the documents you're sending for these job apps? And I'm like, well, my whole committee my letter writers, the teaching and learning writing center, all of my peers, like eight or nine of them, my family. So it's like my list is like 20 people long at this point. And he's like, oh, I think we should think of more people for you to show these documents to. And it's like, I can't, I personally cannot spend mental energy and time rewriting and rewriting the same, you know, it's two pages about me. It's as good as it's going to get. And I got to send it. And I just don't think, I think they don't realize how much of it is sheer luck and timing and the better you can make these documents. Like my whole seven years in the program has been me making my documents as good as they can get. Like I can't change any more of that now. And then if I, if I don't hear back from any of the psych or anthro programs, I'm applying to a couple postdocs. I really don't want a postdoc because I've already published enough that I don't need time just for that. And then I'm over the precarity kind of. But if I don't hear back, I'm going to start looking for non-academic jobs, probably in industry, doing UX research or, you know, whatever anthropologists do these days. I have a fair amount of coding experience and I'm, you know, really organized and detail oriented. So I'll find a job somewhere. We'll just have to see. That was, that was an excellent job pitch, by the way. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yeah, come hire me. I... I care about the world's problems and I want to solve them. Yeah, I might look into work in policy. I might do something, you know, kind of 
not challenging or demanding for a while. Might just, you know, be an academic advisor and help people register for classes, click some buttons. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, but hopefully I hear back from any programs. I applied to one program last year and I got interviewed, but I was a really good fit. And I haven't really seen, like, there's nothing this year that's perfect for me. If there are people like, you know, the market goes the way it goes. And three or four years ago, everybody was looking for, you know, like digital archaeology, 3D scanning, LIDAR. And then everybody was looking for like sustainability and climate change people. And now everybody's looking for race scholars and diversity and equity people. Who knows what the next thing is going to be. But if you don't fit in those things, and I'm, I'm incredibly niche in my discipline, it can be hard to kind of pitch yourself to a program and, and not know where it's going to land because they just don't contact you back. It's not like they say anything. They just ghost you. So you just kind of off into the ether. I was going to ask because I've heard this spoken from many people who are applying for these jobs. It's, it's like there's like a batting average. So it's like you're going to put out, say, if you do 10 applications, you'll maybe hear back from two or three, maybe five at most. And from those, you one or two, you get an interview. So I just wanted to put those numbers out in the world to say that like as yeah. an academic, these, this is what you're looking at is that yeah, you're looking well, at disappointment, like large numbers. And it's like, I would, I would easily, I, I would spend more time, you know, finding and replacing university names in my same 90 pages that I put together. I would do that for a hundred schools if a hundred were hiring, but 25 is it. That's the list, you know, and oh, what, 10, 11 of them are anthro? For how many people are on the market? 300, 400? If you include, you know, non-recent grads, 600 or more? Yeah, yeah. It's just, I want to, I I just want to talk about those numbers because it's, 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 that's also a staggering number to me is that like, you, you do all this work, you put in all this time and, you know, you're, you're, it's like baseball numbers. You might get a hit one every like 10 times. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, getting a tenure track faculty position at this point is like becoming a pro athlete without the wages or the contract. (laughs) Yeah. I guess you, you you know, you get the contract if you get tenure, you don't get the wages, but it's, and, and this is the thing too, is like in this meeting with my, the director of graduate studies where he was grilling me about my statements. He was also like, we really want you to get an academic job. We don't want you to fail. And I, I just heard that word and I'm like, that's not a failure. You can't keep like, you can't say that to people who, what if you go into your program wanting to go into industry or public policy or something, you know, cause we're getting a lot more students who want to do that and they just have no idea and I'm also sitting there thinking, like, if you call everyone who leaves academia a failure, you know, 10 years down the line, you don't have alumni connections to hire your students. It's a long term problem to think of it as, you know, us and them and, you know, fail and not. And it's not even acknowledging that you spent time and you got a dissertation like that's not like that's an achievement in and of itself. I think anything past that. Yeah. It shouldn't well, be called I, a failure or anything like that because you, you, you have this great achievement that you already went through. Like, that's hard for me to hear that, like, if you don't get an academic job, you're a failure. 
you know? Yeah. Well, and, and you won't hear like that. What you just said, I haven't heard anybody say that to me because we're all steeped in this idea of going on this one track towards the same thing. And so we're all in the failure together in a sense, you know, and nobody's there to tell us like there are loud voices now in, you know, alt act jobs that are like, hell yeah, get out. It's way better, you know? And there are those that are like, it's just the same old capitalist hellscape out here. So it really depends. As, as someone who's in that targeted demographic at the moment, it's definitely because it, it's, it's very different vibes between two different corners of this office. You have Lana over there plugging away all the time, working on job apps. I'm over here forgetting that I'm a co-author on publications, which drove her up the wall. And then... You know, I'm getting phone calls and emails about people wanting me to apply to jobs in museums and and stuff. And so, like, if we're going with this this baseball thing, like, I'm just a guy holding like a one hands full of nachos, the others with beer, and I'm getting hit with foul balls trying to get back to my seat. You know, like, the, it's they're coming to me, and I'm just and I'm not at a position yet where I'm necessarily ready to be on the job market. I can be if like something was like this is your deadline. I do better with deadlines. But I don't know, you know, how much longer is the whole we need to hire indigenous folks phase going to last until there's, you know, quote unquote enough. And yeah, then I'm screwed. I, it's it's scary to think about it that way. And especially, you know, not knowing what the next thing is going to be. But, you know, something that we're both really not we haven't really engaged with it yet is that we're, we're going to have the two body problem where we both want to be academics and we have to find a place where either both of us can get a job or nearby. And that's becoming even more rare. And, you know, luckily, we're both very competitive academics that helps, but it, it, you know, it might not help enough with budget cuts and COVID and everything going on, you know, shrinking faculty lines in the first place. The people that I know that have spousal hires that happened, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years, the, the spouse isn't tenured. It's one of them is tenured and one of them is a lecturer. And that's the best you can get. Or one of them works for the museum or something like that. So there's that as well. But I, I do a lot of reading from people who've left academia and, and advice for that. And it's like, we have so many transferable skills that if I don't hit on the academic job market after a year of trying and after all the years of training that I've done and knowing what the statistics are, I'm totally going to be fine being like, yep, I gave it a shot, y'all. I'm going to be so much happier and probably more compensated somewhere else give it the college try also i volunteer to be your uh, uh couples counseling if you need to talk about potential issues with hiring and stuff like that I've, I've you got it you. all right <laughs> well we'll do yeah. recorded sessions we'll do we'll release them and i know i can't go too much into this because for one of my pre when i was one of those conversations i had where they asked me to apply they listened to the podcast which was a terrifying way to start off that it's like hey really like your show. And it's like, Oh God. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh Oh, you know? And then when we talk about like, we're getting to a question now of different countries, hiring practices and then. Well, and, and visas and I mean, especially 
every conference that, well, most of the conferences I've been going to for the last couple of years are based in Europe. And so I'm in a European academic circuit kind of over there. And uh, I mean, a lot of them are just like, I would never consider working in the United States because we don't have good health insurance and we don't have family leave. And like, so for U.S. academics, especially right now where literally education is under attack and we want an ignorant populace, you know, idiocracy or whatever, it's very difficult to want to envision a future just here versus broadening your horizons and looking elsewhere. But then you do have to, with the two body problem, like if the other person doesn't get hired there, it's very difficult to prove that they deserve a working visa in some of these countries. Yeah. And then and people observe different countries, academics differently. So dissertation, having a PhD means different things if you're from Europe or if you're from the U or Yeah. Canada. The training is totally different. The funding models are totally different. The teaching expectations and like even within the, you know, different disciplines in the United States, like for instance, you can you can graduate from a psychology PhD program having never taught in your life and you'll become a faculty member and you will become a teacher, but you didn't have that experience. Like maybe you graded for one course. And it's that's so different than in anthropology where most of your funding is based on teaching. And then a lot of the jobs don't end up being teaching based. There's something else. Yeah, definitely troubling hot times in in the market. I know we'll talk more I'm about. Trying, I'm trying to stay positive. Uh, and, you know, if nobody contacts me back, like at the end of the day, I've gotten two PhDs. I, I'm a very qualified person. Somebody will be yeah. lucky to have me as an employee. Yeah, agree. I, think- I know next episode we have Alex Garcia Putnam. Important to include Putnam as we'll get on to next episode. He just graduated from UW with his PhD. And uh, he's now, I mean, I guess kind of spoiler alert, he's he's like the forensic anthropologist in Oregon or Washington. Yeah, he's the assistant. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we'll talk more about how that job market went, how he went. Because I know, I'm pretty sure Alex wanted to be a professor. So I'm curious for next episode, which we actually record tomorrow. You saw him today. How is he doing, Connor? He's doing good. He's doing good. good. He's, he likes it out here so far. Um, yeah, we'll talk with him, him soon. But I... I will say in in my limited observations of folks who are committed to the academic lifestyle and looking for it is that persistence will pay off, I think, through time. I think that's something that we've shown, even though you might not be a professor immediately and you might eventually get into that position. But I think it if you want to do it and it's something you really want to do and it, it, it pays to be persistent. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we'll see. You know, if I if I don't hit on the market, I've been saying all year I'm going to give myself this year, and then I'm 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 done. I don't want to engage with it anymore. We'll see, but it's like the waiting game ignores material pragmatics of our lives, where it's like I have loan payments that are going to kick in. I've made twenty five thousand dollars or less for the last eight years of my life, and I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. Like I, I have to find something. And if PhD programs are going to graduate students that can expect to be on the market for several years, 
then they need to put resources into training us to find jobs while we're on the market. And that is like, I mean, even saying that sentence out loud, it's like, can you imagine 10 years from now where we have like the Center for Innovative, you know, job market limbo, where they show you how to, you know, tweak your CV for seven years while you, you know, work three jobs. Like, I don't want that. I don't want a reality where we have to expect to be on the market for years because we got we got to get paid. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's that's a great point, Lana. Thank, thank you for thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, before we end the show, Lana, what are a couple sources? You know, these could be books, articles, videos that you recommend for anyone interested, either in your research working on handedness or um, surviving the job market. Friends and family. I don't know. I, I'm at, I'm at a point where I'm very disengaged with. I mean, I can tell you the brain imaging papers I've been reading, but nobody wants to hear those. They've been very helpful to me. Yeah, I don't know. I think staying connected in the in the application process and bitching with others who are in it, sharing your documents with people. So um, I'm yeah, I'm in a dissertation writing group with people all across the university and all these different departments. And that's been really helpful because we all just, you know, come from our different unique spaces and we all have the same gripes. And so I would recommend writing groups and stuff. What about the professor is in? Would you recommend that book? Uh, mixed reviews on that, I would say. Okay, I would we'll say do. it's a good place to, you know, she, okay, she has a lot of free material. Go ham with that. I will say a lot of her free material is, I mean, getting to be kind of dated now. It's like 2008, 2010. So, and I, I, you know, Twitter has fantastic academic spaces and, and could go crazy on those. Academic Twitter. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. So where can our listeners find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter, retweeting academic things at Lana Ruck and on Instagram at Lana Lately. I'm not super active on it. And that's about it. Yeah. Well, you're on it. You just don't post much. Yeah, I'm a lurker. Mm. Yeah, I mostly get cat memes. All right. Well, everyone, we just interviewed PhD candidate Lana Ruck. You can find her on Twitter at Lana Ruck and Instagram at Lana Lately. Those handles are down below in your episode description. And please be sure to rate the podcast and provide us with feedback on whatever platform you're using to listen to our show. Let us know how we are doing. If you hate it, if you love it, if you don't want to hear David's face ever again, if you don't want to hear my face ever again, you know, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We might not listen to you, but we'd love to hear from you. And if you're seeing 75,000-year-old temples and mountains somewhere, please give Carlton an email because apparently that's what he's dedicating a lot of his time to. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at A Life in Ruins Podcast. And you can also email us at A Life in Ruins Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. So, what's the human psychology behind all this toilet paper hoarding? Ooh, tell me. That's just how we roll. Ooh! Ooh.
I liked it. I liked it. Excellent. Poop humor, great. All right, everyone, we are out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.